1: possibility of our being instruments of God's peace, unless we have a very strong confidence in God. Many years ago, I had a wonderful experience of seeing an illustration of this great spiritual principle of trusting. I was visiting a sheep herder in the mountains of northern Wales, a place called Shanna and I was standing one beautiful spring morning in the bedroom window with the shepherd's wife. And we watched as the shepherd brought this great, looked like a rug of sheep coming down that mountainside. He was on, the shepherd was on horseback and he had his dog Mac with him. The shepherd's name was John, the dog's name was Mac. And I'm told that almost every shepherd in Wales is named John and all the sheep dogs are named Mac. <laughs> and, um, uh, it was very obvious that there was a very close relationship between Mac and the she- the shepherd. The dog lived to please his master and he trusted him absolutely. And I could see the dog circling around to the right bringing the sheep together on that side then stopping as it were on a dime and suddenly turning and circling around on the left, and he kept doing all sorts of strange things, and I couldn't see that the shepherd was giving him any signals at all. But the shepherd's wife told me that he had a whistle that was unheard by the human ear, but the dog could hear it. Well, that happened to be the day that the shepherd had to dip the sheep in order to kill the parasites and prevent various kinds of skin disease. And so Mac, the dog, brought all the sheep that the shepherd designated into the pen where this sheep dip was. And I stood there and watched as, first of all, Mac took up his place beside this trough of very evil-smelling black liquid, and John would grab the rams by their horns and with all his strength fling them into this trough. And, of course, the poor sheep would struggle desperately, come up spluttering, at which point Mac would snap at his face and force him under again, and the shepherd came along with a long implement made of wood that looked kind of like a hoe, and he would force the sheep's head again, eyes, ears, nose, everything, under that water. And I thought, if only there were a way that we could explain to those trusting sheep why this is done. They have trusted this shepherd all their lives. Why would he be treating them in this way? And of course, there was no way to explain anything, but I knew what the answer was. The only reason that the shepherd was doing that was because he loved the sheep. If we ever for one moment doubt that God loves us, that will undermine our confidence in him. The wonderful thing is that the sheep continue to trust the shepherd, even after that experience, because it has happened again and again, and they have never been given an explanation, but they continue to follow the sheep, the shepherd, and to trust him. And the Bible says the Lord is my shepherd. I shall lack nothing. And he leads us, doesn't he, sometimes beside still waters and in green pastures. And then there are times when he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. He is a loving God. He not only is loving, he is love. That is his nature. And it would be impossible for him to treat us in any way not in harmony with that nature. And my confidence in God must rest solidly and unequivocally on his character, not on what he may do or not do. So often we hear of somebody who so-called so lost her faith. Well, you know, the poor soul, she had to go through so many things. It's no wonder she lost her faith. It would be impossible to lose our faith if it is founded on the bedrock of God's character. It's obvious that when someone has lost his or her faith, it's because it has been based on something less than ultimate. God is not only loving, God is powerful. And not long ago, my husband and I were given a wonderful tape by a Scottish preacher, and there's something about that Scottish accent that seems to enhance the preaching. In fact, my second husband, who happened to be a Presbyterian minister with Scottish background, he used to say a Scottish accent's worth an extra thousand <laughs> per year. But he didn't have the Scottish accent, he wished he did. But this uh this preacher told me something that I had never heard, and I was completely fascinated with this. There is a star called Antares. Now there's some of you here who are astronomers and you know all about this, but it was just thrilling to me to hear about this star. It belongs in the constellation Scorpio, it's visible low on the summer horizon, it's sort of pinkish, and it is called a super giant, 390 times the size of the Sun. Which is one and a quarter million times the size of the Earth. Have you got that? Now if we imagine this this Antares as a rubber ball that's hollow, and we slice the rubber ball in half, we could put inside it Venus, Mercury, Mars, and Earth, and the Sun. They would all fit inside the ball. And the planets, Venus, Mercury, Mars, and Earth, could continue their orbits around the sun without touching the outside of that ball. Now, that is the size of one star. And he tells me that there's another star that's, I think he said, 350 times the size of Antares. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm lost when I read things like that. But I love the verse in Psalm 147, which says he determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Now, God is not so preoccupied with tremendous things in the galaxies that he can't pay attention to you and me, to the least of his sheep. And it says in that very same psalm, right next to that verse I just read, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. God is powerful. He's wise if he can make a star like that and hang it where it belongs. And it's always exactly where it belongs when an astronomer looks for it. And he loves us as that shepherd loved the sheep and treats him in what seems a terrible way because he loves him. That's where I can put my confidence. And nowhere else. When I was a child, we were corralled every morning after breakfast into the living room where we would sing a hymn. We went straight through a hymn book. We'd sing one hymn per day, and one of our favorite hymns was how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. And my parents were both seven day a week kind of Christians. And they taught us that we had to trust God. God. And we had to obey God because the only valid proof of our trust, in other words, the only real evidence of faith, is obedience. Jesus said, If you love me, do what I say. And we also sang in our family prayers, Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. So that is the foundation, the very bedrock of my faith. And I'm so thankful that I was taught that when I was so young. But you know, every one of us has got to be tested, not once and again, but again and again, so that we can be reminded of who God is and of the fact that he does, in fact, move move in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea. Ever seen any footsteps in the sea? He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. The, uh, there's another verse that says, The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. And like the rest of you, I've had experiences in my own life where it was incomprehensible that God was allowing certain things to happen in my life that didn't make any sense to me any more than the sheep dip made any sense to those poor rams. And you know, God does not discuss these things with us. He does not explain himself he simply says trust me back when I fell in love with this man named Jim Elliott that I wrote the book about I was praying very desperately that the Lord would not call me to be a what we used to call an old maid missionary I was thrilled with the idea that God had in fact called me to be a missionary I was thrilled but I didn't really want to be single for the rest of my life and I began to think during my second my senior year in college that God might, in fact be asking me to make that kind of a commitment, because there was obviously nobody on my horizon that was interested in me or that I was interested in. And so I was saying, "Lord, will you give me a husband?" And so often I find, in fact, practically always, I find that when I ask God questions like that, that are really none of my business today. His answer is not an explanation or a yes or a no. His answer is, trust me. Well, but Lord, could you just kind of give me a hint? I mean, might there be be somebody 10 years down the road? It wasn't a yes and it wasn't a no. It was simply, trust me. Well, God did bring us together, but not until five and a half years had elapsed. And there's a wonderful story in the Bible, in the third chapter of Daniel, that teaches us this very same lesson. You remember that the king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, had made a law that when, I love all this, when the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must sound, then every man must fall down and worship the image of gold that the king had made. Well, then it's reported to the king that there are some Jews who are paying no attention to the king's edict. And it says, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zithers, lyre, pipe, harps, and music of all kinds, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good, but if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar. We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand. But, and this is the part I hope you will never forget, even if he does not, We want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. And you remember that as the king, after they were thrown into the furnace and the people who threw them in were actually burned up because it was such a hot fire, the king looks in to see how things are going and discovers four people and he turns to the men there and he says, Didn't we throw three? And they said, Yes. And he said, Who is this that walks with them through the flames? Never forget the but if not. And Job said, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. When I was a brand new missionary, Before I was engaged, I was working in the western jungle of Ecuador with a very small tribe of Indians called Colorados. These people had an unwritten language, as did several of the tribes in Ecuador. I had special training to reduce this language to writing, and it was my great hope and privilege to reduce that language to writing with the view of translating the Bible for these people. The first thing that I needed was what we call an informant, somebody who has the patience primarily to sit there with this apparently retarded foreigner and teach or just re- repeat again and again and again what for him is the easiest language in the world. Of course, they have absolutely no idea what writing is. They've never seen anything like it, and it doesn't make any sense that when you sit there with your pencil and paper, you're actually putting the language down on the piece of paper. So one of my first problems was trying to get across to these people what I was trying to do, which I didn't succeed in doing, really. So it takes endless patience for somebody to have to repeat over and over and over again what for him is so simple. But God gave me a most amazing informant, a man that I hadn't even dreamed of asking God for, who was bilingual. He was—he could speak Spanish and Colorado. He happened to be a white man, but he had b- been brought up with Colorado children on an hacienda. So he was the only man in the world, literally, who spoke Spanish and Colorado. Of course, I had had to learn Spanish first. It's the national language of Ecuador. So we worked together very happily. He was willing to work at my price. He was willing to sit there endlessly with patience and never get upset with me. And beyond all that, to my utter astonishment, he was a Christian. And he was delighted to be participating in what he considered to be the work of God. We had only been working together for about six weeks, I think, when I was in my bedroom one morning reading my Bible, and I came upon 1 Peter 4, where it says, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial that is to try you as though some strange thing happened. It happens to give you a share in Christ's sufferings. I heard gunshots. There was nothing unusual about hearing gunshots. This happened every day. The white people that lived in the clearing where I was hunted with guns. The Indians had bought guns from the white man, and they also hunted with guns. So we very often heard gunshots. These were followed, however, by... Horses galloping, people screaming, general pandemonium. So, of course, I rushed out and found out that Macario, my informant, had just been murdered at point-blank range with about six witnesses. And I looked at this corpse with this huge hole in the head. What would you have said to God? Three-letter word, right? Why? Why would God allow something like that to happen? God had called me to do this job. God had given me a gift in linguistics. God had given me the training. God had sent me to Ecuador. God had showed me the tribe to go to. God had given me an, an informant who was just perfect for the job. God knew there was nobody else in the world that spoke Spanish and Colorado. And Macario was dead. There's that but if... Not. Will you still trust him? When the most inexplicable thing happens, remember, he doesn't discuss things. He doesn't explain himself. He never answered Job's thousand questions, except with the mystery of himself. Years later, not very long after, but at the let's say months later, I had moved over to the eastern jungle, having actually reduced the Colorado language to writing with far more difficulty and far more laboriously and slowly than I could have done if Makadio had survived. But I did manage to corral an Indian once in a while to sit down and do the the job. So it was very slow and very desultory. But at any rate, at the end of that year, I had reduced the language to writing. Of course, I hadn't done any Bible translation. I was not really fluent in speaking the language. But there were two English women missionaries there to whom I had committed all my materials, and I had coached them in how they could proceed from that point on. They had been struggling with the language, but they had not had the same kind of training that I had had. So I gave them that all the material. And the reason that I was moving to the Eastern Jungle was because Jim Elliott during that year, had asked me to marry him. He was working on the other side of the Andes with a tribe called the Quichuas, and he said, I, I will not marry you until you learn Quichua." <laughs> he had seen enough missionary wives who got hung up taking care of their families and coping without all the appliances they're, they're used to, and they never quite got around to learning the language. So he said, if you're going to be this missionary's wife, you will learn the language first. Well, I didn't think that was too high a price to pay to get a man like Jim Elliott, And I know some of you are sitting there thinking, poor Lars... My husband, Lars, is back there. He has to listen to this all the time. And he gets called Mr. Elliot quite often. And he says, don't worry about it. I'm Mr. Elliot III. So, anyway. At any rate, um, I had moved over to the eastern jungle. I was studying Kichwa when I got word that all of my Colorado language materials had been stolen. Now, this was in the days before Xerox and before tape recorders. There were no copies of anything. What would you say to God then? For whom did I do that job? Now, if my life is totally given to God, then everything that I do belongs to God, doesn't it? My life is at God's disposal. If I'm going to be an instrument of his peace, it has to be in his way, on his terms. And I can't ask him any questions about, Lord, what are you doing, other than the questions that have the answers already in Scripture. He has got to shape us. He has got to hone us. He has got to test our faith. He has got to say to us again and again, I am the Lord. Will you trust me? Can you trust the God who made Antares? Do you think that if he can manage those unspeakable spaces and galaxies out there, that maybe, perhaps, just conceivably he can run your life a little bit better than you can. He says, I want you to trust me. Trust me. I love you. I know what I'm doing. He is a loving God. He is a wise God. And he is a powerful God. He could have prevented Macario's death. He could have prevented that suitcase full of notes from being stolen from the top of a banana truck. All the charts, all the three-by-fives, all the notebooks, everything that went into the reduction to writing of that language was in one suitcase that was stolen. And God says, will you trust me? Well, a few days, a few weeks after that, I heard my fiancé's voice on the Jungle Missionary Radio Network. We had a morning contact every, every day with the Missionary Aviation Base And my fiancé was on another station, and I heard him announce that the entire station on which he had just been working for a year had gone down the river in a flood, straight down the Amazon. He had built three new buildings. He had repaired two old buildings. And, of course, once again, God is saying, will you trust me? Now, those were hammer blows in the shaping of this particular instrument for God's purposes. But they were relatively light by comparison with the one that God was preparing me for, which has already been mentioned. It was when I was standing beside my radio one morning that I received a message that my, by that time my husband, Jim Elliott, and his four companions were missing. They had gone into the tribe called Alka's, with the hope that God would enable them to give the gospel to these people for whom they'd been praying for many, many years. There were about nine tribes of Indians in Ecuador. The only one that had never been reached by missionaries was the Alca tribe. And many people had gone in there looking for oil and rubber and gold. None had ever been heard from again. So we we were very aware that these people were hostile to outsiders. We knew that they were Stone Age people. And we knew that they didn't wear any clothes. We really didn't know anything else about them. So it was with a great deal of prayer and preparation that these men went in there, set up a camp, maybe four to six hours' walk away from where the Alcas actually lived, but believing that God could bring the Indians to them if God wanted to do that. They didn't want to offend the Indians by barging right into their own houses. And so, of course, we five wives on our respective stations did a lot of praying after the men went in there, and we heard from them daily by radio. Everything was going fine. Nothing had happened. They hadn't seen any Indians yet. They went in on a Monday. But on a Friday, they called to say that they had had a a friendly contact with three Alka Indians. It was just so exciting. We could hardly stand it. Two days later, a radio Uh, contact had been scheduled but was not kept. The wife of the pilot who was in charge of the radio contact from the base was there waiting and there was no message. And so we knew that something had happened. We didn't know what it was and it was on Monday morning that I learned the first thing about this. I did not know on Sunday that a contact had been missed. So when I learned that Jim was missing, the first thing that God brought to my mind was the words from Isaiah 43, verse 2. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God. I am the Lord thy God and I realized that God was not saying if you pass through the waters but when and I can stand here this morning and testify to you that God has never broken a promise. I think of that last well it was a, the, the several stanzas in that hymn that I mentioned at the beginning how firm a foundation, Two of the stanzas are taken directly from that passage in Isaiah 43.2. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace, all sufficient, shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The flame did not hurt Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They had placed their trust in God, whether or not they were to be burned to a crisp. When John the Baptist was in prison, he sent word to Jesus asking, are you really the Christ? And I think of the agonies that that faithful servant of God must have been going through mentally as he lay there in prison as a result of obedience to God. Have I mistaken my calling? Is it really not the Christ? And you would think Jesus would have immediately gone to the prison and answered the question. But no, he sent his disciples and he said, tell him, yes, the blind see, the lame walk, the dead are raised from the life, to life. But blessed is he who is not offended in me. Jesus knew his man. John the Baptist was not offended. And he was not rescued. He had his head chopped off. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with thee, thy trials to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. We must submit all the wise in perfect trust, in absolute confidence that God does know exactly what he's doing. And ladies and gentlemen, he's got the whole world in his hands and he's got you and me, brother and sister, in his hands. He calls the stars, he names them one by one, but he also heals the broken inhearted, the hearted and binds up their wounds. I know that's true. Years later, I sat with one of the men who had actually killed Jim. He was sitting there holding a little tiny, very primitive tape recorder in those days, and I said, tell me your story, Gikita. Tell me what you did and how and why, because I had been dying to know why did these men kill the five missionaries. So I had... By this time, of course, had to learn the Alka language, which they had, they had never heard of anybody not knowing Alka. But I was able by this time to ask questions and to get the answers, and so he was telling me the story. And, of course, it was very vivid with all sorts of onomatopoetic words describing the spearing and the falling dead and the having to drag the bodies into the river, and it was extremely graphic, and when he got through, he turned and he p- pointed to my husband's picture that was sitting over there on a stack of kerosene boxes. It was my bookcase. And he said, well, so that's your husband, is it? And I said, yes. And he said, and what was his name? And I said, Jim. Well, that was an impossible phoneme for uh, Alka. They didn't have any sibilants in their language, so he couldn't say that. But he tried, and, then he, and he said, well, he's laughing at us, isn't he? He's smiling. And I said, yes, he is. And he said, well, if we'd known him the way we know you, he'd be sitting here with us smiling today. But he said, we didn't know we thought he was a cannibal. Now, the Alcas believed that they were the only civilized people in the world. They didn't know that there were quite a few other people in the world. In fact, they some of them had the idea that perhaps they had killed the last five white men. So they wouldn't need to worry about getting eaten. The more I learned about the utter lack of any real rationale, the more I got to know these wonderful people and I could name all five of the men who actually did the spearing, the more incomprehensible it seemed that because of some silly notion and because of the foolish word of a teenage girl who had said after the friendly contact that she had had before the men were killed, yeah, they are cannibals. And I said to her, why did you say that? She shrugged and she said, onongi, which means for nothing, it was a silly dancing girl and her evil adulterous mother that suggested the death of john the baptist god allows very strange things to happen doesn't it doesn't he but the last stanza of that hymn how firm a foundation says the soul that on jesus hath leaned for repose i will not i will not desert to his foes that soul Though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Where does your confidence lie? God bless you.
0: I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today and will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember... The eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.